And now we can have some audience participation. Does anybody have any idea who this man is? Oh, wow. I thought someone would. That's okay. No, no you're in trouble. No, Presbyterians are not in trouble. <laughs> All right. I'll tell you. William J. Seymour. He was the one who God used to really start the Pentecostal movement. It started in America and has spread throughout the whole world. There are now upwards of 700 million Pentecostal charismatic believers in the world. He started with a humble black man. He was blind in one eye. His parents were slaves. They had been freed by the time he was born. He was brought up in very, very poor circumstances. His family were very poor, as indeed were most emancipated slaves. They were promised that when they were freed, they'd get 40 acres of land and a mule, but the then president of the United States rescinded that promise. And uh, there's actually a significant movement in the United States now trying to convince the authorities to actually give them the equivalent. It would cost about $3 trillion. A lot of people say you can't afford that, but the American government has spent $3 trillion on COVID-19. So, of course, they can do it if they wanted to. Whether or not it's the right and good and proper thing to do, that's a different issue. But he was very, very poor. I've read quite a bit about him. I don't understand how he managed to become such a, a, a literate man. He wrote beautifully. So despite his poverty, despite his circumstances, he must have actually had a really good education. And it was probably his mum. But I don't know for sure. But God chose this man, William J. Seymour. Because William J. Seymour was open to God's leading. Now I want to show you a photograph. You can see that City Point Church. Most people would have heard of City Point Church. It was the original, uh, it wasn't the original, it was in West End, but that was where Christian Outreach Centre Australia was um, really birthed. That's a photo of the car park about 10 years ago, and you might wonder what on earth does does the car park at City Point Church have to do with William J. Seymour? Well, I suppose one connection is that it is a Pentecostal church, but I just want to share with you briefly what happened to me when I was standing in that car park about 10 years ago. Now, that's why the cars are older cars. That's not a current photograph of the car park. It's actually been resealed since then in any case. But I stood there and I was looking at the cars. And and what do you notice about that photo there, about the cars? Remember, just go back 10 years. Is there anything you notice about the cars? Well, what I noticed, I don't like dead air, remember? I was a radio announcer for 11 years. I don't like silence. (laughs) I feel it. I feel it. I I don't like small spaces either. I feel them too. (laughs) But this is the thing I noticed. They were all pretty new motor vehicles. A reflection of the socioeconomic status of the people who were associated 
with everything that was going on in that campus, a church, a school, a higher education institute, childcare centres and so on. And God said something to me. He said, the Pentecostal church has to get back to its roots. The Pentecostal church has to get back to its roots. And I've been chewing on this for 10 years. And I felt today was the day to share something with you about the roots of Pentecostalism. Here's an old photograph. Now, William J. Seymour is in that photograph. I didn't bring, I should have brought my pointer. That's him here, second from the, the right at the bottom. And that's his wife, Jenny. She, I think that, that's her up there, second from the, the left. She was uh, from South America. He was a Negro, of course. But just looking at that photo, these are the leaders of the mission church that was established in Los Angeles under his leadership. What do you notice about those people? Is there something you notice about those people? They're all well-dressed. Oh, they are well-dressed because they would have worn their Sunday best. Yes. Yep, they're back in white. those days, they're, they're you know... They're hey? white. Sorry? They're all white. No, they're not, actually. They're it's a little bit hard to tell because the, it's an old photo. But they're white people and black people. What else do you notice? It's a variety of ages. Yes. And that's interesting because I haven't read any commentaries that talk about the spread in ages. But in fact, I think that's quite remarkable. What's the other thing about it? Lots of women. Okay. This, this, I, when I started reading about William J. Seymour and, and he was the guy who really kicked off the Azusa Street Revival in 1906 in Los Angeles. My spirit soared. I thought, wow, here's a man who responded to God. And God wasn't concerned about the colour of his skin or the sex of any of the leaders. And he wasn't concerned about their age. The, the commentators called this an integrated church. It was illegal. But back then, by the way, there were segregation laws in the United States. And he was born in Texas and he, he basically got his theology from a fellow by the name of Parham. P-A-R-A-M, I think. P-A-R-H-A-M. Parham. Uh, Charles Fox Parham. He was a white preacher, but he'd been influenced by the revival in, in, in Wales, which happened, I think, in 1904, a few years prior to the 1906 revival in Los Angeles. But um, Parham was kind enough to leave the door of his church open so William J. Seymour could sit at the door and listen. But in 1906, he was invited to move from uh, Texas up, up to Los, Los Angeles. But after he preached a few nights, his congregation locked him out because they didn't like what he was preaching about. And so he went off to some friends. He made a few friends there and he went off to their house and they prayed fervently and they actually got back into this building 
in Azusa Street. And uh, down the bottom was all stables, and that's where they met. And there were thousands of people came. Men and women, black and white. All kinds of outrageous headlines were published in the newspapers. Worse than anything anyone's ever said against Hillsong. They were talking about orgies going on inside the building. When in fact all that was happening was that people were being filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered. It was an amazing time. I believe this is what God was saying to me. We've got to get back to our roots. And I, didn't, I actually titled this discussion point Roots. And I'd actually forgotten about the TV miniseries which was called Roots. I don't think you, you would be the only people old enough, I think, here today. You, did you ever see that? Yeah. It was about American slavery. Let me tell you something. This lasted for only two years. Within two years, there were some doctrinal bust-ups. Uh, one of the major ones was over whether speaking in tongues was meant to be just known languages, and there was lots of evidence of that. There were lots and lots of people who were baptised in the Holy Spirit and they spoke in foreign languages so that people who were visiting could understand them. But see, there were some people who held very strongly to the idea that that was the only kind of tongues that there is. But what they were experiencing was not only the capacity to speak languages they didn't even know, but the so-called heavenly language that isn't an earthly language. That was one of the issues, but the other issue was race. By 1914, the American Assemblies of God organisation had become established and it was essentially a white church. And by then, Seymour's congregation had dwindled to a tiny, like this, congregation of black people. See, that broke my heart when I learned about that. This thing started off amazingly. But because of the frailty of human beings, something happened. I want to show you a little video. I apologise that there's some quality issues with this video. It isn't in copying the video to show you today. It's in the original but I just want to play this. This runs for about six or seven minutes, so have a look at this. Azusa Street is now just a quiet little alley near downtown Los Angeles. But a hundred years ago, this was the site of a revival unlike any seen since the events of Acts chapter 2. Starting in April 1906, dozens, then hundreds, then thousands of Christians were baptized in the Holy Ghost at this rundown ramshackle mission building. They spoke and sang in tongues, found a new depth of prayer, and saw healings and miracles. He opened another Bible school. One of his most fervent followers there was a young black pastor, William Seymour. Because of the segregation laws of the time, though, Seymour couldn't actually sit in Parham's classroom, but had to listen from out in the hallway through the door that Parham left open for him. Even though he himself had yet to speak in tongues, Seymour became an ardent advocate for Parham's doctrines as this one-eyed son of a former slave moved to Los Angeles to take a preaching job. But after just one sermon in which Seymour preached about tongues and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, his new congregation, mightily offended, had locked Seymour out of the church. Two black families took the cash poor pastor into their homes till he could get enough money to return to Houston. 
But till then, they hadn't meet prayer meetings, most of them in this big house on Bonnie Bray Street. And a few days into a 10-day fast they'd held, specifically seeking the Holy Ghost, he suddenly filled them. First, Seymour's good friend Edward Lee, when Lee was getting prayed over for healing. Wilma Berry of Joshua Ministries met us in front of the Bonnie Bray house. They came running down here to the Bible study to share with everyone the testimony. Edward Lee is filled, and he was healed too, praise God. And then everyone from there was filled. Luis Johnson is a tour guide at the Bonnie Bray house. Then he started to give his testimony. And when he gave his testimony, it was happening, it was going on. The house went wild and suddenly everyone was swept to their knees before God. And many began to speak in tongues, Seymour among them. And Seymour's future wife, Jenny Evans Moore, received another special gift that night. The Holy Ghost filled Sister Jenny Moore and she was not a pianist. She did not know how to play the piano. But that night when she was filled with the Holy Ghost, God also showed her how to play the piano. She was praying playing and singing in a language that was not her native language. Jenny received the gift of playing the piano, and she had that gift up until her death. The people in the house were so excited, they poured out onto the porch, where Seymour began to preach as an excited crowd gathered. Even the fire department was called, and literal, they thought flames were coming from the top of the house. The house was filled with people, filled with the presence of the Lord. It was such an uproar that people came literally from all over the city. The house was filled for several days with masses of people jamming the yard in Bonnie Bray Street. Then just a few days before a killer quake hit San Francisco. There was a young person who came to the porch when the crowds grew out in the street and they prophesied the great San Francisco earthquake. I mean, that brought the fear and it also brought curiosity and they get a lot of people coming to see what was going on. People rushed the porch, the porch caved in, and they had to find a larger place. And that's when they moved to Azusa Street. The Azusa Street mission had been an abandoned church building. Apartments upstairs, dirty old stable for horses downstairs. Nothing's left now, just a short alley and a plaza where the small mission once stood. And it ran uh, 60 feet in this direction and 40 feet in that direction. Cecil Roback, the world's leading authority on Azusa and author of Azusa Street Mission and Revival, gave us a tour of the area. We would actually be standing inside the mission at this particular point uh, on the plaza. The services took place where the horses used to be stable. Up to 1,500 people might try to jam into the main room, with those who couldn't fit filling every window. On a hot day or night, it could be tough to breathe beneath the eight-foot ceiling. Everybody was having to fight the flies all the time. The, the, you know, the horses had been in there, they had done their business, the flies were hatching out, and it was an incredibly uh, awful place to have to worship. And yet. Here were hundreds and hundreds of people attracted day after day, staying many times all night long uh, in order to be where God was doing something. The presence of God was so heavy on the Azusa Street mission, people sometimes reported being knocked to the ground by it, blocks from the mission. Inside, they said the Holy Spirit himself ran the meetings, which often went nonstop around the clock, filled with healing signs and wonders. One of the most striking features was an impromptu singing in tongues, where all the voices in the room would harmonize in what was soon dubbed the Heavenly Choir. Sometimes Seymour was hardly visible in these meetings, as he'd pray for hours with his head tucked inside the hire of two boxes nailed together to serve as a pulpit. But his leadership was rarely needed, as the Spirit appeared to orchestrate dozens of people testifying, singing, and preaching in each meeting. Anybody, regardless of their age, could be six or they could be 60, uh, it didn't matter whether they were black or white or brown or any other color. It didn't matter what their level of education was. It didn't matter what their gender was. 
they were understood to be a real priesthood of all believers in which every believer had something to give, something to contribute. But a main feature of Azusa was people falling before the Lord, getting baptized in the Spirit, and beginning to speak in tongues. Local newspapers like the Los Angeles Times mocked it over and over. An early headline read, Weird Babble of Tongues, New Sect of Fanatics is Breaking Loose. Critics have said that these tongues weren't really languages at all. But listen to this. Once a Jewish man went to the mission to gather evidence about tongues to use it in sermons against Christianity. When he went up a staircase in the mission, a young lady pointed a finger at him and in perfect Hebrew, his native language, told his first name, last name, what he was doing in Los Angeles, and gave him a record of all his sins. He asked where she learned Hebrew. She said she didn't know she was speaking in tongues. He fell to his knees and repented on the spot. People would come into the meeting and they would hear their language, Russian and Armenian and various languages, and they would hear the gospel being preached. And they would come running to the altar, how do you know my language? And give their hearts to the Lord. All the accounts I've read of William Seymour were that he was a very humble and gracious man. He never once spoke out against racism. He was so sold out to the Lord. And he was so inclusive on the basis of age, gender, race, and socio-economic status. I'm not critical of Pentecostal churches today, and I'm certainly not critical of Pentecost. I know most of the pastors there, uh, and I've known them for more than a decade. I've got great respect for them. And uh, so I'm not critical of Hillsong, I'm not critical of any of those churches, but I do think it's just worth observing that the overwhelming majority of people who go to Pentecostal churches in Australia today are relatively well off and they're white. That somehow we've lost something of the very essence of that Azusa Street revival. And I don't think that we need to go and do the old sackcloth and ashes thing, but just be aware that I think God is renewing the church. He's refreshing the church and he's calling us to go back to our roots. You know, if you go to the United States, there are very large congregations. If you have a look at, say, T.D. Jakes on TV or um, Creflo Dollar, they've got very large congregations they're almost all black people. Have a look at Eagle Mountain Church, that's the Kenneth Copeland uh, Ministries Church at Eagle Mountain. Overwhelmingly, you'll see white faces there. So even though there are no laws about segregation, the church still remains, in some senses, segregated. It still is difficult for women to make their way, even in some Pentecostal churches. It, it is changing, but very, very slowly. I have a good friend, uh, Glenda Heppelwhite, who's doing a PhD on this very topic. If you go right back to the early 20th century, there were a number of women who were very significant in the development of the Pentecostal movement. And really, there was no prejudice against them back then. It's something which crept in. And praise God, I think he's changing hearts today. 
Because he knows that only love can truly make the church effective. See, God has said in his word, we will be known by the love that we have for one another. In fact, Jesus in the book of John, he says, I give you a new commandment, a new. And he said, what was it? Love one another. And that means we have to be what they called back then, integrated churches where we don't discriminate on the basis of age or colour or sex. In 2016, on the 110th anniversary of the commencement of the Azusa Street Revival, uh, George Wood, who's with the Assemblies of God Church in the United States, said there were at least five characteristics of that Azusa Street Revival associated with William Seymour. These are not necessarily in order of importance, but I think it's worth us contemplating them and and thinking about how we might respond in a modern Pentecostal setting today. The first was that there's a hunger for God. And this was not a hunger to know about God, but a hunger to know God. As a personal, relational God. To truly experience what it means to be loved by a truly personal relational God. They were not satisfied to hear about God. You saw in that video, William J. Seymour, he didn't preach like I do. Most of the time he prayed and God through the Holy Spirit had his way in the congregation and people were being set free and people were being healed because of the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. They weren't satisfied to know about God. They weren't satisfied to hear about God. They wanted to know God and they wanted to hear from God. They had a real commitment to loving one another. You know, so real was that commitment. He never had to talk about it. He never had to talk about racial disparities. He never had to talk about gender imbalances. You know, there are university departments that specialise in these things today. But these guys loved one another so much it was never even a topic for consideration. They did what Jesus commanded them to do. They loved one another. And as a consequence, thousands of people came to experience the presence of God. They were committed to the Bible as God's Word. Yet there are whole denominations today that teach the Bible can't stand on its own. That it can't stand on its own. What William J. Seymour and the early Pentecostals said was actually it can. This is the final authority on all matters concerning the practice of our faith. Sure, people like me teach and interpret, but there is no way we would ever overturn the Bible. That's what the early Pentecostals 
believed. This is God's word. Yes, it was given to us through real life human beings. And so their personalities show, their talents show. And there's all kinds of different uh, literary devices used in the Bible. There's poetry, there's allegory, there's pure history and so on. It's all there. But it's God's word. It's God's word to us. Fourth, there was a dedication to spirit-empowered evangelism and missions. It is amazing how many missionary workers came from that group. And you know what? They never sent a bucket or a plate or a bag around for tithes and offerings. They did what we do, and this is not why we do it. There are other reasons. But they just had a box at the back. And yet that box at the back gathered up enough money to send missionaries everywhere. In fact, mission was part of the heart of Azusa Street. Mission out into the rest of the United States and mission to other parts of the world. And in fact, when I read Greg Wood's commentary, I even felt really convicted at this part. Because he's actually, and he's speaking to pastors, he says, if you don't have a heart for evangelism and mission, you are going to have a lot to answer for on the day of judgment. And yes, we're doing a lot in places like Uganda and Sri Lanka and some other countries through the Ignite Life family. But I feel convicted that, and this is me, I'm not telling you what you've got to do. I feel this is a conviction upon me, myself. And the fifth thing was a commitment to restoring the New Testament church. We did a series here when we used to have a Wednesday night connect. It was called Power Fall. It was all about the power of the first century church. Louis Giglio did that series. And, and, and that series focused on how that first century church, the very early church, was empowered. You look at Peter. Remember Peter was the scared, the scared coward who denied Jesus Christ three times. He, along with the other disciples, they sort of got out of the joint when Jesus was crucified because they were frightened that they might end up being persecuted. But you look at Peter in the book of Acts, what happened to him? He was totally transformed. He was a different person because he'd been filled with the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, he was empowered. He stood up in front of the authorities he even told them they were the ones who crucified Jesus. He risked his life. And ultimately, tradition has it, he was. He was crucified. But he asked, him, he asked to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to die in the same way as Jesus, his Lord and Saviour. But he was a man who was totally transformed. You know, these guys used to go in and they... People were healed when their shadow fell upon them. Wow. There's not nothing, there's not a shred of evidence in the Bible to suggest that that isn't supposed to be happening today. Right? There's theology around that says that was only for that time. But there's no biblical evidence that that's the case. 
There's nothing in the book of Acts that says, by the way, folks, this only applies to the church that existed at the time the book of Acts was written or at the time that it was written about. Seymour instigated a little newspaper and he used to write in that newspaper. His theology was pretty simple. This is it. In a sense, there there are three works of God associated with our salvation. Uh, One is what they they called it justification. It's what we call being born again today. Justification is actually, it's a legal term which really means to be pardoned of a crime. So when we're saved, when we come to Jesus, when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, legally speaking, we are justified. God pronounces us innocent, forgiven of sin. Seymour had been heavily influenced by what is called the holiness movement that grew out of the the Methodist church, Wesley and so on. By the way, the first recorded experience of speaking in tongues in modern times was in a Catholic church in 1831. I just thought you'd want to know that. I mean, you might be able to impress somebody with that knowledge one day. Oh, well, okay. I thought that was, you know, that'd be great, a good trivia question, don't you think? First modern record of anyone speaking in tongues. It was in a Catholic church. How about that? (laughs) God's no respecter of persons, is he? So holiness, see, sanctification, we see that in the Bible a fair bit. It just means being set apart, essentially. Um, The Greek word... Which, un- which is translated sanctification, is also translated holy or holiness. And you see, we're, we're sanctified the instant we're saved, that is, we're set apart for God's purpose. See, the Bible says that we have been saved for works that he's prepared for us right beforehand. He's already done that. So we're sanctified for that purpose. But you see, there's also another element of sanctification, which is this becoming holy. Becoming more and more like Jesus every day. There's, there's, uh, uh, in a sense, it's it's something which happens the instant we receive Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. But it's also a process. And this is one of those things that's a bit hard to get your head around. It's a process. I am becoming more holy as time goes by. You know, as I spend more time in the Word, as I spend more time building my relationship with God, as I allow Him to speak to me, I'm becoming more holy. You might not notice it, but anyway, I am. Okay. So too are you. And it was a very important element of the theology that was being um, taught by uh, Seymour and others in those early days. But the other thing was this, what they sometimes called the third work of the Holy Spirit was what we now call baptism in the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues. Now listen, the point about it is not speaking in tongues of what they call evidence 
in, in Assemblies of God and certainly in ACC here in Australia, we are Assemblies of God in Australia, they hold very strongly to the idea that speaking in tongues is the initial evidence of being baptised in the Holy Spirit. But let me tell you, the point about being baptised in the Holy Spirit is not so you can speak in tongues. It's actually so you can receive empowering from on high to do as God desires you to do. That is to live your life according to his principles, but also to become actively engaged in the Great Commission. Go into all the nations and make disciples, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. That doesn't just mean in Africa or Asia or Latin America, it also means in our own backyard. And one of the things that I've been thinking on a lot lately, as I've reflected on my experience in that City Point car park a decade ago, is that have I been perhaps a bit misleading by focusing so much on divine health and divine prosperity, on, on healing? As you know, I often speak about healing, I often pray for healing. But you see, healing wasn't the focus in those early days of the Pentecostal movement. It was baptism in the Holy Spirit. And you see, it was the empowering that came with baptism of the Holy Spirit that was associated with the healing. If you understand what I'm saying... So the centre of the wheel wasn't healing and prosperity. The centre of the wheel was baptism in the Holy Spirit. And an outcome of baptism in the Holy Spirit was an empowering that came on people to pray and others were healed. And it happened during worship. And it happened during uh, the preaching. It just happened all the time through the services. There, there, there are... Um, there are records of people who came in who had arms amputated, who got a new arm, for goodness sake. And it wasn't just a hundred people in a room hallucinating. But you see, people didn't come to church and huff and puff and jump up and down and holler and shout and pray for the Holy Spirit to come so there'd be healing. No, they were just open to the Holy Spirit and people were blessed with that baptism and then the power flowed. We have to get back to our roots. We have to get back to our roots. A different kind. Look, I don't know how it will look. I don't know how Ignite Life Church would look. But I, I just think it's time for a heart reset. You know, if you get um, a fibrillation in your heart, you know, when, when your heartbeat goes out of sync, you know, they send you to hospital, they stop your heart and start it again. That kind of thing. That's what we need. It's a reset. And I've been pondering on this for a decade now. I remember Jeanette and I sat at home and we watched the 100th celebration. It was on uh, um, Christian television, sort of broadcast by satellite all over the world. This was in 2006. And that was when, yeah, that was when I first heard, wow, this is what these guys were on about. Later on came the, the Kenneth Hagans and the the Oral Robertses and the Kenneth Copelands and, and uh, so on, who focus so strongly on things like healing and prosperity. But the more I read about this history, the more convinced I am that 
These are the three things that sit right at the center of Pentecostalism. And the healing and the prosperity, they are the outcomes of that empowering of the Holy Spirit. And we can all be like Peter. We can all be like John and the others. We can be like Paul. We can find the eloquent um, words to speak to other people, to share with them. But could I suggest that one of the things we need to do is to love one another. To love one another enough to desire the kind of church that existed way back there at Azusa Street in 1906. And as a pastor, it's my responsibility to begin to lead us there. And it's not something that will happen like that. We can't click our fingers and make it happen. There are lots and lots of resources. You can look at videos on YouTube and so on. There's been a, a great deal of interest in the Azusa Street Revival in recent times. And the Assemblies of God, certainly in the United States, they're really pushing towards a, a, a renewal of thinking. They, they want to get back to their roots. And I think God is saying to us today, let's do the same, let's get back to our roots. Let's get back to our roots. Let's be so committed to the word and so committed to loving one another that we actually become blind to age, <coughs> to sex, some people call it gender, but it's actually sex. Gender is something that happens with language, not with people, but anyway, that's, don't worry about that, that's just me. Okay, in, in language, you have male and female gender, right? In humanity, you have male and female sex. Now, not verbal, I'm talking about, all right? Anyway. We need to get back to our roots. We need to love God and love one another so much that we're totally blind to age, to sex and to race. And that what we see in people is him in them. And I think even for me, my an area for reset for me is Holy Spirit empowerment, which then leads to healing and prosperity. Amen. So it doesn't start with jumping up and down, shouting and hollering, and telling God he's got to turn up and heal us. Yeah. It starts with us having that desire to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and to receive the empowering which then allows his spirit to flow. And when his spirit flows, that 